0: I am excited to talk today with my guest, joining me all the way from Melbourne, Australia, is Sue Barrett, CEO of Barrett Consulting Group. You know, there's this rapid trend toward increasing specialization in sales roles. You know, we've got sales development reps, business development reps, inbound sales development reps, outbound sales development reps, account execs, customer success, and so on. You'd think this uh, company—you'd think that a company has increased specialization, sophistication would be more nuanced understanding of the types of people who could successfully fill these jobs. Instead, it seems that sales leaders are still stuck on relying on old-fashioned outdated stereotypes such as hunters and farmers. I guess my question is, do these archetypes still have any relevance or meaning at all for sales? And my guest today, Sue Barrett, is going to help us sort this all out. Sue, welcome to the show. Thank you. So why don't you uh, just take a minute, introduce yourself, tell us a little about how you got started in sales.
1: Well, it's very interesting. Um, my company specialises in helping people and businesses sell better. And uh, it'll be tw- my company will be 21 years old this coming January. And well, congratulations. We, uh, thank you. And we're a full-service consulting advisory and education firm just specialising in the area of sales, from sales strategy, sales force design, um, mapping what good needs to look like, And also, of course, training and coaching and creating perpetual learning environments for sales teams and sales leaders. So it's been a really interesting uh, journey in the last 21 years trying to map and unpick what good needs to look like for businesses. Where I did start my career in sales, interestingly enough, was in my uh, family-run business. My father ran a big timber uh, wholesaling business and he had 120 staff and he was the CEO and lead sales manager. And in fact... That's where I learned uh, what good selling was, not that I knew it at the time. Uh, and then I ended up doing a science degree. I fell into the pharmaceutical industry in sales back in the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, that's where I learned how not to sell because uh, a lot of the, these, these companies taught us how to, pardon the expression, but show up and throw up information in front of doctors. Right. And and it didn't feel right to me Um because when I look back now, in hindsight, I look back at what my father did. He just was proactive, but he liked helping people and he listened and he understood where they were coming from and then he would sort things out for them. And in my studies over the years and uh, in this business, it's, I find that the best salespeople tend to be the ones that, yes, they're proactive and can step out there to find opportunity, but they're the ones also who like actually helping people sort things out. and uh, and they're very handy and very useful to know. So uh, post the uh, sort of rather shaky start to my professional sales career in the pharmaceutical industry, I did actually fall into the recruitment industry uh, by default and I turned out to be quite a good sales recruiter and I spent about eight years uh, interviewing salespeople and managers across industries, mostly the technical and industrial medical scientific markets. And I interviewed approximately 8,000 people face-to-face, about an hour each. Wow. In wow.
0: That's like yeah. four, four full years of, of interviewing.
1: <laughs> well, um, the interesting thing about being in that job, and it was an apprenticeship for running my own business, actually, is that where I, where, where, where I worked, you know, if you didn't bill anything, you didn't earn anything. So you pretty quickly learned how to manage your own portfolio. Mm-hmm. But but it was also a really interesting insight into people. And so I met a lot of different types of people from industry and um, I found it fascinating that the people, you know, when I spoke to sales managers, the number one thing they asked for was industry experience. But what I soon worked out was that that industry experience didn't actually allow for new ideas or new opportunity. And so a lot of them were just recycling the same old people with the same old knowledge and the same old experience, and then we're getting the same old results in the industry. And it turned out that my best placements were people not from the industry. Hmm. So, I, so I worked out pretty quickly that my if, if there had been a behavioral sciences degree uh, when I was at university and I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up, I've actually by default now become a behavioral scientist. So this topic we're talking about today is close to my heart because I'm really interested in what good looks like um, what are the qualities we need to, you know, take into account, and, and how can we develop people to be magnificent salespeople?
0: Well, great answer. And, and on your LinkedIn profile, you you call yourself a sales philosopher. I like I like that. So, what do you mean by a sales philosopher? <laughs>
1: um, well, I think to me, well, we live by the philosophy that selling is everybody's business, and everybody lives by selling something.
2: Mm-hmm. I agree. The last.
1: The last bit of that, everybody lives by selling something, is not my own phrase. That's actually a phrase coined by Robert Louis Stevenson. And you may recall that Robert Louis Stevenson, um, he was an author, a, mm-hmm. a travel writer, and he actually wrote the books Treasure Island. Right. he Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They're probably the most famous ones um, that people would know him for. And he also travelled the world, though, and it was really hard to do so. I mean, he lived in the latter part of the 1800s he was very insightful in terms of his observations of people and the and the nature of people and he was a travel writer a poet an author um, a journalist and he traveled the world in all sorts and went to all sorts of countries and one of the phrases that he coined through observation of people was that really everybody lives by lives by selling something you know whether it's through friendship or commerce or whatever they're exchanging something with each other and you know, and I'm I'm quite philosophical in how I try to look at things and what are sort of the the, the truths that really stand well, you stand the test of time. And so it's very interesting. A couple of years ago, when my eldest son, who's now 17, said to me, "Mum, look, I don't believe that everybody lives by selling something." And I said to him, "That's really interesting, darling. Why do you say that?" And then he tried to persuade and convince me why if it's <laughs> he tried true, to
0: sell you why that was not true, right? Exactly.
1: I then said to him, but, you know, Josh, by the very nature of you trying to persuade and convince me, aren't you trying to sell me something? And he went, oh, yeah. So I think I come, I come to sales from uh, the, uh, the philosophy, I suppose, that this is a life skill. This is something that's a truth that ultimately at the end of the day when we're engaging with each other, whether it's for friendship or commerce or whatever, that we're just trying to help each other understand each other, and just some of us do it better than others, if you see what I mean. And some of us do it for the right reasons, and some not. And you know, and it will—it's—it's it's a continuum, and it will shift and move and shape and and all that kind of stuff. So I—I have I, always been quite—I um, have been accused of thinking too much. I will confess. So I think I am by nature quite <laughs> philosophical, but I'm also very practical and, right. and pragmatic. about this.
0: Yeah, so I, how do we, I, it sounds like me actually in some regards. I have the same guilty of the same things. Well, I think to your point about you know everybody lose by selling something. I mean, Daniel Pink, if you've read his book *To Sell as Human*, yeah. makes the point that fully three quarters, roughly three quarters of white collar workers in the United States that he talked to feel that it's part of their responsibility basically to uh, sell themselves or sell their ideas, you know, internally within an organization, you know, in order to promote a certain agenda or get the work done that they need to get done.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you look at it as a life skill, not just as a front of house business skill, um, it's incredibly important. Now, what your intentions are that lie behind that? Well, that's obviously <laughs> that can come in all sorts of shapes and forms. Yeah. But you know, when I look at a business, and you know, in your in your introduction, when you were mentioning all these different, you know, um, sales roles. Um, I actually philosophically and practically actually look at the whole value chain across the whole business. To me, everybody lives by selling something and selling is everybody's business should actually be part of the mandate of every single employee in an organization. So what is our line of sight to the customer? Um, How is my role um, affecting the relationship that we have with our customers? And also back out the other end in terms of suppliers. Mm -hmm. And i that if we're going to actually have good business out there, where we're not trying to rip people off or you know exploit people, if we actually want to have good business happening, then everyone should actually have um, you know an orientation around or an ownership of, of the concept of selling is everybody's business.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I agree 100. percent. I mean my most recent book, yeah, you know, I'm pretty explicit right up front saying sales is a service you provide to your customers. Mm. And I think it's absolutely true that if you don't have that service orientation when you're selling, then it's just something you're trying to do to someone. And Mm -hmm. that's not really as effective as doing something with someone.
1: Well, it's not a long-term strategy. And I think that when you actually make yourself available to be useful to people and to help them sort things out or achieve certain things, whatever is is the uh, mandate, the fact is that people value that. They, They recognize that. And look, some people want to take advantage of that if we don't know how to stand up for ourselves and we don't know how to articulate the real value that we offer. Um, but those sorts of things, you can help people have foundations that will help you know, create stability for them when they're dealing with a range of people. But the vast majority of people want to do good business.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I agree. I agree. So, I mean, getting back to sort of the theme that we started with is, is mm-hmm. sort of this idea about, yeah, I read one of your blog posts about. You know, hunters versus farmers—a topic that's you know, been around in sales for what seems like forever—and you know, you talk about really how that those roles are, in some respects, pretty irrelevant these days. Mm. So, why is it that sales managers and CEOs, entrepreneurs, seem so stuck on these sort of broad, easy labels, right? Really misleading labels of sales reps as either a hunter or farmer?
1: Um, I think it's a a broader issue. It's a symptom of what I would call point-solution-itis where selling is a complex system of variables and approximations. It is not a linear process. It's not black and white. Um, It's not easy to report on, as we well know. So I think what happens is in the absence of, you know, deep understanding and thinking about these situations and being able to deal with their abilities and complexity, people look for easy answers or, you know, or, or easy solutions. Well, they're not solutions. They're just sort of, you know, options, if you like, that may or may not work. And um, so I think hunters and farmers, the terms that we're discussing, are symptoms of people looking for the easy answer, um, and not actually looking and all being able to deal necessarily with the variables that go with a complex system like sales operations.
0: Well, and I think that it speaks to the point you were talking about before is that it's really not customer oriented, it's internally oriented, right? I mean yeah, no customers aren't out there <clears throat> excuse me, customers aren't out there saying, gosh, I hope <laughs> I hope an overly aggressive extrovert comes and calls on me today. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, if you go back into the 1980s, 1990s, that sort of thing, even to the 1970s, and if you think about some of those environments, some of those sales environments where, you know, you you would have company plaques or, sorry, customer plaques or names up on the walls of boardrooms, like big game hunting. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the language in those environments and still in some areas is about the kill or the target. I mean, it was very, very... You know aggressive very testosterone laden it was all out there and hence the the term hunters and it was also two at a time i think when you know product you know could have differentiation and you could just go in there with your features and benefits and, and probably have an edge compared to say your competitors at the time but products are now of course so sort of easily copied and the edge is uh, has diminished markedly so you know, price becomes the variable there. But back in those sort of 70s, 80s, 90s, sort of um, very, as I said, sort of testosterone-laden, aggressive, you, you've got terms like Hunter and, unfortunately, um, they're not dis- <laughs> disappearing. It's, it's, like, it's like the negativity of, you know, when people think about salespeople, you know, all those negative stereotypes. I mean, they've been around forever and, you um, we actually produced a paper called the history of sales methodologies and why some work and others don't and we actually talk about this whole sort of legacy of the negativity of sales and of course some of the sales practices that you know didn't help the cause if you know what i mean mm-hmm. um, and so this is a th- these terms are legacy terms and they haven't people just use them out of convenience uh, because they actually really don't understand what good selling needs to look like for their businesses and how to articulate them better. And I know that might be a harsh statement, but it's true.
0: Yeah, I mean, so if we were to turn it around and say, okay, well, what what are the qualities that prospects and buyers are looking for in a sales rep?
2: Mm.
1: Well, if we're looking at what good needs to look like, they expect to be helped. They expect to be informed in a way that's actually um, effective and efficient, so not just dumping more information on them. Um, They expect to be listened to and to be, um, you know, understood in such a way that you can work within their system so that you're actually being able to deal with complexity and ambiguity as much as you're being able to provide clarity and articulation within that. Mm -hmm. Um, They expect you to actually be business people who can sell, to be honest. Um, not just product jockeys and technical experts. They expect you to have a level of business acumen, particularly in business-to-business selling, but even even in complex business-to-consumer selling. You need to be able to understand the broader, you know, economic, political, environmental, social climate of which you, you, you work in. You don't always have to chop that out, but you need to have it as a backdrop. So, you know, we need people who can think and uh, actually make decisions and not just, you know, talk at people. And you've got to – and, I mean, there's there's an interesting work by Adam Grant in his book Give and Take um, that the really good ones are otherish in that they understand other people. Um, They're empathetic, and I don't mean that they give way to the client, but they do understand them, and they're also prepared to help them see – Different alternatives, but that doesn't mean to say that they're aggressive in nature either. But they're able to help people look at other variables in context of the situation that that client or prospect is actually considering.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I look at sort of ideal qualities, and the empathetic as one. I love that term, otherish. That's really that's really a good a good word. Um, you know, curious, yeah. problem problem solver, listener, yeah. as you talked about. And yeah, it's so rare that you see these qualities in a job posting for an opening, right, for a sales opening.
1: Oh well, and I think that that is again the the our head of learning and development is German, and he has a fantastic saying from Germany, which is, "You sweep the staircase from the top down," and <laughs> I like it that comes too. from yeah, it comes from the top and you have got to be able to set that agenda and set that mandate of what you're looking for. I don't know about America, although I know bits and pieces, of course, but in Australia um, we're fairly, well, there's some hierarchy, but we're reasonably egalitarian and you'll find that in a lot of cultures that they're very interested in people who um, are capable and able and and we can't be a, a one-trick pony in this country because our population's is too small. Um, unlike America, where you could probably have a product and sell that for quite some time and make a lot of money out of it, um, in Australia you can't because we just don't have the population base. So by default, we have to be much better at solution selling, and because we're bringing in a range of services or a range of you know products and so mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. so we have to be able to be much better at listening and understanding and. Weaving in a solution cell rather than just here's one thing, off you go. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's, there's certainly some logic to that. I mean, Australia is what, 35, 40 million?
1: No, only 23. Of them oh, only them.
0: 23, gosh, okay. okay. Have done. So, yeah, yeah, that's, you're talking about well under one tenth the size of the United States in terms of population. So, yeah, the number of opportunities are, are relatively small.
1: That's right. So you have to actually be able to provide, you know, if you want to have a longer-term relationship with your clients, you just can't sell one thing, if you see what I mean. So I wonder sometimes that in certain marketplaces, um, because of size, that you might be able to get away as a business, maybe maybe more so in the U.S., with, you know, one, i mean, in vertical commerce, you know, one thing that you can sort of like a bushfire take out to your marketplace and, 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 and eke out a lot of opportunity. Um, whereas in this country and maybe other countries at smaller scale it wouldn't work that way. So I think the other thing too is that it's um, we've got to look at everything in context of the environment and the marketplaces that we're in. So, yeah, not every, it's not it's you know, of course it's not a one-size-fits-all approach.
0: No, no, it's not. Well, we're going to take a short break here. and When we come back, we're going to talk some more with Sue Barrett about the right personality types for sales, as well as talk about a report that her firm has put up called the 16 trends, sales trends of 2016 or the 12 sales trends, excuse me, of 2016. But before I go, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical question. I pose this to all my guests and give you a second to think about it when we go for our break. So here's the scenario. You've been hired as a new sales manager at a company whose sales are badly in need of a turnaround. And upper management's really anxious to have this happen in a hurry. So what are the two things you could do in the first week that could have the biggest impact? Okay. So talk about that when we get back. And my guest today is Sue Barrett from Barrett Consulting in Australia. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a thousand companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect & Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect & Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect & Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Hello and welcome back to the show. Uh, with me today is my guest Sue Barrett from Melbourne, Australia. And we've just been talking about hunters and farmers and their relevance in sales today. And before the break I posed a hypothetical scenario to you about you're a new sales manager in a sales turnaround situation, sense of urgency is high. What do you do in the first week? Two things you do in the first week that have the biggest impact.
1: Okay. The first thing that I would do, um, well they kind of work in, in, in parallel with each other the first thing that I would do is get the senior executive together and the other sales leaders, if there were other sales leaders in the business, and I would do a complete audit of the sales strategy and operations. Um, I, of course, can say that because we actually have <laughs> an audit questionnaire that we would uh, that we'd actually do this with companies. But um, if I had access to that, that's the very first thing that I would do to get a baseline report On all all the components of a sales operation, and actually uh, get the health check of that, because by understanding that, we will know uh, where the various areas are that we need to tackle straight away. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, within that, we would be looking at sales results, and we'd be looking at strategy. We would be looking at market segmentation. We would looking at our sales messaging. We would be looking at our sales current salesforce structure. We'd be looking at things like what sales processes are in place. Now, in, in one week, that might be a bit you know a bit rich to get through everything, but this is what I would be looking at and uh, and various, and, and you know, our governance and um, technology and, and those things. So I have like a checklist that I would work through and I would work with the senior leadership group to get access to that information and to also have them contribute their thoughts on mm-hmm. that area. And then the other thing is that I would um, – Depending on the size of the sales force, I would want to go and at least meet with all the sales leaders first. And then if I can get out to as many of the sales people as possible, I think I'd probably need at least a month or so to be able to get around to everything, depending on the size of the um, team. But I would endeavor to try and speak to as many of these people as possible face-to-face or at least over the phone to start with. But I would want to understand where they're at, what was happening, understand their um, challenges and issues uh, that they were facing in the marketplace. Uh, and I would obviously have a look at sort of the impact. And um, I'm sorry, I'm going to throw in a third thing. And that That's is right. to look Go at, ahead. And that is to look at the actual um, messaging from the business. Is it client-facing or is it all about them? Because unfortunately most companies' marketing material or brochure, in, you know, if you know what I mean, the brochures mm-hmm. that you their materials, if, you know, if, if we look at most companies out there, Andy, who, who are most companies' websites or brochures written for, themselves or their customers?
0: <laughs> Mostly themselves, I think, yes.
1: Exactly. So I would be looking at that. Even before I joined, I would have looked at all of that and I already would have a checklist. So if it was written about themselves, I'd be working very quickly to turn around and make sure that that was uh, properly aligned to the segments you want to go after, and absolutely have it be uh, customer-facing and customer-centric. So, um, yeah, they'd be the couple of things that I okay. would uh, immediately start to focus on.
0: Sounds good. So I want to talk again about this report, or not again, but talk about this report that you produce every year, the 12 sales trends of 2016. Now, is this meant to be just for Australia, or is it uh, you know encompass other markets as well?
1: It encompasses other markets as well, so we try to make it uh, as global as possible. So, because we're not, you know, I mean, whilst Australia is an island, we're not an island business wise, and um, we're obviously part of a global economy. So, what we do is we report on as many global trends as possible, but then we'll also make some perhaps emphasis on some of the things that are happening for Australia as well. So, it does have some Australian um, eccentricities in there, but uh, we do want to make sure that it's, it's. we're looking at global trends and then whatever that may translate to it from a local perspective here in this country.
0: So what's on tap for 2016 in terms of some of the trends you're seeing?
1: Okay, well, um, just to give you a bit of a sneak peek of what's coming through, um, the, the thing is about less is more and it's about decluttering because we are in the midst of a tsunami of information and it's causing great angst for people in terms of decision making. Um, one of the one of the trends will be about competition zero, which is indecision, and a lot of us worry about our competitors out there. You know, current, you know, direct, mm-hmm, alternative. Mm-hmm. But in fact, indecision is one of the biggest competitors facing businesses at the moment, simply because um, a lot of uh, there's too much information and people are overwhelmed and they don't know what to do and you know, trusted names of the past aren't necessarily trusted anymore or not there at all, but there's so many other alternatives and it's hard to find the truth and the real facts in sea of opinion and, pardon my expression, crap.
0: Yeah, yeah, well there was a, a study that came out, you probably saw that this year, gosh, I forget in 2015, I forget who, which firm authored it basically found that, gosh, it was 50 to 60 percent of Qualified sales opportunities end up in no decision.
1: That's right, and so that's your biggest competitor in many cases. Oh, absolutely. So, how, so how do we, as salespeople and businesses, combat that? Um, and that's part of part of one of the trends that we're talking about. Is and it doesn't. I mean, a trend doesn't have to be a good trend because one of the trends we had, you know, in 2015 was um, the first trend was the race to the bottom, where there are organisations out there because companies aren't delivering value beyond product they're getting screwed on price and Mm -hmm. then you find these predatory tactics of businesses, often large businesses, who are going after suppliers in such a way that they are actually, um, you know, uh, well, it's this race to the bottom in terms of who they can, uh, you know, drive down and, of course, it's not a a long-term, you know, strategy for success. It's a short-term thing but it causes a lot of distress and pain and um, erosion.
0: Yeah, so if you're a, what you're saying is if you're a smaller company trying to compete against a larger enterprise, they're going to use their pricing power against you in a predatory fashion to try to drive you out of the market.
1: Oh, absolutely. But also, too, you know, there's, there's also, uh, you know, um, when they're looking at vendors, there are those large companies that are, you know, preying mm-hmm. on these people. So, I mean, the irony is we're talking about hunters and farmers from a sales perspective, but they, they, you could probably say that they live in, um, in procurement. You know where you 've got this predatory uh, effect happening, and it's a very simplistic view of the world um, by because they extract they 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 just cut out any form of real value mm-hmm. um, and, and and a lot of a lot of companies are looking for innovation from their suppliers they are looking for people who can bring along nuanced ideas or different ways or different combinations of things, and you can't do that if you 've just got a product and a price on a you know, on, on, a, on an online bidding, you know, Dutch auction type thing. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just ridiculous. So, um, again, you know, it's, it's the chicken and the egg. People have got to step up and, and walk away from these predatory practices that some, you know, uh, client organisations are putting on their, um, you know, putting on their uh, suppliers. So how do you do that? How do you work away from that?
0: And what are you seeing as good practice or best practice to do that?
1: Well, it's about not just taking things at face value and actually throwing the line back on um, organisations who have these sort of practices and and just saying to them, look, you know, know, what are the things that you actually have in place and what are the things that, um, you know, you're going to be held accountable for because there's all care, no responsibility in many of these contracts. So, um, for example, you know, by asking uh, questions, for example, of your client company or your what is their risk management strategy? You know, what other activities are they taking to reduce costs rather than throwing the costs all back onto the supplier? You know, ask them, you know, what plans do they have in place if, if, if the supply chain fails them? Um, once you throw those sorts of questions back, um, it's very. It shows you if they've actually done the thinking, or they're caught up in very simplistic thinking as well. You know, so they're the sorts of things. We just have to be more um, strategic, more courageous, and also prepared to walk away and not have all our eggs in one basket as, as suppliers.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what can, and from your point of view, is what can sellers do to reduce this no decision rate? I mean, what are some of the two, three things? The two, three things that are. Uh, you know, if an entrepreneur is listening to this and he's got a sales force or a small business owner, you know, that's really critical for them oftentimes because they're running a fairly thin pipelines compared to other companies is, you know, what can they do to make sure they better qualify the opportunity and actually move them past that point of no decision?
1: Okay, well, a couple of things. Firstly, it depends on who you're selling to. Where this no decision tends to be um, more significant or, or more prevalent Um, is in larger organizations where they have decision by committees. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a smaller business or, you know, medium-sized business, uh, entrepreneur, I would make sure, depending on what you're selling, of course, is that I wouldn't be putting all my eggs in the big business basket. I'd be making sure that I have relationships with business, so variety. Um, I would have relationships in new market segments with medium to smaller businesses
2: Mm -hmm. where
1: you're in a position, because if you're going to be dealing more with the business owner and there's less people involved in the decision-making process, that at least will be much easier in terms of getting articulation around a decision. The other thing that's important then too is when you're meeting with people, be very, very clear about your value proposition and how you actually help organisations be successful and also be fantastic at clearing away the crap. Don't dump more information on people help clear it away mm-hmm. by asking good questions and finding out specifically what that company is trying to achieve or that client and then being very clear about how you can help them actually reduce noise, about how you can help them get where they need to go and that you can back it up with evidence so that they feel safe and can trust you.
0: Now, yeah, it seems like part of this issue with with multiple decision makers is not only just an artifact of deselling to larger enterprises, but it also appears, based on the research at least we're seeing here in the states, is that that you know somewhat generational that the Gen Xers and the Millennials uh, have a little more consensus style, consensus based decision making style.
1: Yeah, they can have more consensus based style, which is not a problem. But that that in itself, unless we've got a strategy, because that's the other thing I notice about organizations is that. Um, strategy is poorly formed and poorly executed in many businesses Um, again because I think lack of complex thinking and of course if you don't have experience under your belt um, you don't have a lot to rely upon in terms of you know the instincts and 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 background information you know that you've had in the past so I think it's really important that when you come across a company and they don't know what they don't know or they don't know what they want I would actually say, and it's a big call, but I would actually say they don't have a clear strategy about their business mm-hmm. and they actually don't know what they want to do. And so then you're kind of like the recipient of their lack of direction.
0: Yeah, I mean, and there's that, no impetus for change at that point.
1: Well, that's right, and so they stall and they become indecisive. So I think it's really interesting that the really, the really good clients that, that we work with, even if they have some question marks, they know where they want to go. And in our case, when we work with them, they just need certain assistance or clarity or they just want an independent view to help them clarify things. But they already know where they want to go. They just need some advice or guidance about how, what's the best way to get there, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they don't know where they want to go. When I meet other organisations and they're all flipping and flopping about and, you know, oh, I'm not sure about this, I mean, firstly, it drives me mad, <laughs> but... Um, but it's about well, what are you here to do? What are you trying to achieve? And then they give you that kind of look and they go, oh, well, um, and you just go, oh, you know, you, you can't make them, you know, have a have a vision. No. <laughs> They've got to have one. I mean you can help them, sh- you know, um, shape it and craft it, but, but you can't make them have a vision. And if they don't have one, um, they don't have a strategy then, you know, you're pushing it uphill. So I think the advice for any, you know, company wanting to work with other companies is find out what their vision is and the clarity and look at the leadership back to the sweeping the staircase from the top down. Mm -hmm. Do they have something that's compelling that's driving them towards the future? And if they don't, then they're probably going to be a bit tricky to work with. Even if they're very nice, they're going to not be as easy to work with and you're not it may be more difficult for you to you know to engage with them and 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 that's where it could take a lot more time uh to get results
0: yeah or maybe you just need to put them in nurture mode and come back when they've got some clarity around their own business vision and business plans well that's Uh,
1: right you're not going to jettison them and, and, and say no but the fact is that you just might need to move on and come back as you say when they're ready but and if they're not ready chances are they won't be around
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm. Well, good. Great answer. So we're moving to the last segment of the show. I've got some rapid fire questions for you. You can Mm -hmm. give me one word answers or you can elaborate as you wish. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. So what's the most powerful sales tool in your arsenal?
1: Okay. From a salesperson perspective um, is my um, interest in other people and wanting to understand where they're coming from. So my curiosity and otherishness, if you like.
0: <laughs> um, I'm going to start using that word, by the way, other, otherish. I, I like that I,
1: a lot. I just want you to know I can't claim that word as my own because that came from the book from Adam Grant's Give and Take, so that's okay. where it's from. But, yeah, it, it's just my inherent interest in, in people and what they want to do and then how I could be of assistance to them. And then the skills, of course, go mm-hmm. with that. So, yeah. Okay. And as a sales leader, as a sales leader, Um, is the ability to be able to craft and communicate and deliver strategy.
0: Okay, great. So name one tool that you use for sales management that you can't live without. Coaching skills, coaching tools. Okay. Who's your sales role model?
1: Actually, my dad. Okay. Um, he was very otherish and a really, really kind, and uh, but very focused, achievement-oriented man. He was a very good role.
0: Very good. So what's the one book, whether it's sales book or not, one book every salesperson should read?
1: Oh, that's very interesting. Um, I, I read so many things. Um, hmm. Okay, I would actually say at the moment off the top of my head, I would read that Adam Grant book, Give and Take.
0: Okay, it's Give and Take.
1: Give and Take by Adam Grant. He's a professor at Wharton University in the U.S. And I would suggest that they read that at the moment. I, I may think of others, but off the top of my head, that one would be okay. very
2: useful for them.
0: All right, I like that one. So here's a really tough question. So, what's your favorite music to listen to to pump yourself up for an important meeting or sales call? <laughs>
1: um, I'm not. I'm. I'm not one of those people that needs uh, the. You know the, the, the external the motivation. Hitting. No, no, I, I'm, I'm intrinsically driven by my curiosity. But if I was to say that one, if I was to have to have a piece of music, it would actually be uh, quite the contrary to pumping me up. I think I would like something that quite meditative and beautiful. That would be quite calming. And so, some beautiful piece of classical music or some lovely sort of meditative type thing. I, I find selling, if you're in the zone, quite zen. Mm-hmm. Not a, not a, not a. Um, you know, rah-rah, pump guitars up kind of thing, because to me that stuff's a bit like a hot bath that soon gets cold. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I would I would rather something that actually uh, calms me, you know, keeps me calm and centred and ready to listen.
0: And so what's your favourite classical piece?
1: Uh, anything from Bach, but particularly uh, the Bach Violin Concerto, uh, sorry, the uh, cello concerto, so I love um, Yo-Yo Ma's uh, Concerto, yeah. uh, the cello pieces that he
0: plays. But not the Brandenburg Concertos?
1: Oh, well, they're beautiful too, but I I love the cello, and uh, Bach is um, rather beautiful and um, very very mathematically oriented as well. There's just something about what uh, his music does that I find really um,
0: embracing. Excellent. So what's the first sales activity you do every day?
1: I make sure that um, I have – I check my, my plan. Um, I usually have the plan the night before. I just check my schedule. Um, I think uh, making time for key activities uh, is very, very important. So it would be planning, would just be and confirming my plan every day. And then, of course, uh, it would be, uh, depending on my project list, but certainly um, one of the key things every day would be prospecting because I think that's one of the biggest issues most people have is um, that they don't make enough of the right kinds of calls to the right kinds of people consistently well.
0: Got it. Last question for you. What's the one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople?
1: Hmm. Um, how to prospect. Um, because they're not too bad at planning and once they get in front of someone, they're not half bad, but they're usually terrified at actually prospecting. So it would be, you know, how do I make that call?
0: And, and your answer, and your answer
1: is well. There's a couple of things. One, you have to you have to be prepared about knowing how to make a call, and so you've got to break it down into its components, understand who you're calling and what's it, what it's going to be about. So I have a little process I take them through to show them how to make the call, and if that is all they need, that should alleviate the problem, and they're on their way. However, if they also still suffer from you know, hesitations to making calls because they're frightened of various things, then it's also helping them to understand what it is that's causing them anxiety and fear around that, being able to break that down and then look at that logically in such a way and then helping them develop their resilience and practice and practice making calls. Mm-hmm. So practice, 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 practice and getting used to it and uh, but having a reason to call someone and not just blindly doing it and then helping them alleviate the anxiety, moving from distress, fight and flight, into a more alert but focused and um, prepared manner. So, uh, yeah, they're the sorts of ways we break it down to help
0: them. Well, great. Well, thank you. I want to thank my guest today. is Sue Barrett, joining us all the way from Melbourne, Australia. Sue, please tell people how they can learn more about you.
1: Well, um, you're very welcome to come to barrett.com.au where you can get access to our over 600 blog posts and other information, including white papers and all sorts of things if, that, if that's of interest to you. Um, the other thing, if you want to do any online uh, self-development, you can go to salesessentials.com, where there's a whole range of online sales training resources available for people to help them be magnificent in selling. But, uh, thank you, Andy, for the opportunity to speak with you and your guests and your uh, listeners today. Yeah, well, it's
0: been my pleasure. It's been great meeting you. So remember everybody, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate the pace of your business. Whether you're subscribing to this podcast, there's certainly an easy way to do that. That way you'll make sure you don't miss any of our conversations with top experts like our guest today, Sue Barrett, who share their experience and expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.